0: In this episode, we interview SEO genius, author, and serial entrepreneur Rand Fishkin. Rand built Moz, a $45 million a year venture that's a B2B software for marketers helping companies rank well in Google. He's recently founded a new company called SparkToro. He's also published a new book called Lost and Founder, which is basically a cheat roadmap for entrepreneurs. It's packed with experience-based tips on what actually works without BS. It's egoless and transparent at almost unbelievable levels, and as you'll hear, such is Rand. We hope you enjoy this and learn from him as much as we did.
1: Real life, superpowers. Up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. It's alive.
0: Real life, superpowers. So hey, we're here with Rand Fishkin. How are you, Rand? very well.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Great, of course. So recently read your new book, Lost and Founder, which we really recommend to anybody, uh, both employees and entrepreneurs. And like the first thing that jumps to mind is that where do you get the courage to be so transparent uh, in a world of such ego and startups? You're being so open about everything.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's much less of a choice. I think it's something that I feel passionately about and I really hate the the idea of secrecy. I hate when, you know, stories are told that aren't true and when messages are amplified that aren't the whole story, that aren't accurate. And so for me, transparency is a way of, I guess, fighting back against that.
0: And uh, do you feel like you're getting some feedback from the startup community about the book? Are people getting a bit annoyed that they're sort of bursting a bubble?
2: <laughs> uh, I would say... 95% of the feedback is very positive. But yeah, there are a few people. Um, I think particularly, you know, obviously, you've read the book, right? So I, I don't think folks in the venture community are particularly thrilled with it.
1: But you definitely gave me inspiration now. So I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm getting the courage. Um, I, I sold a company a few years back uh, to a publicly traded uh, company. And I'm driving a Kaya Sportage. So I just have yeah. to say that myself. Like, I, I now I feel... The inspiration. So I just have to tell our listeners that's what's happening <laughs> to me
2: too. That is awesome to hear. Um, and hey, there's nothing wrong with driving a Kia. My, Geraldine and I had a Kia for, what, 12, 13 years? It was awesome. Don't that's know, it? You don't uh, own you your Kia right now? No, no. We, unfortunately, it died. Um, no longer functions. But it, it served us well for more than a decade. What do you drive now? We have a Ford Hybrid.
0: Got it. Okay. Yeah. Still uh. He'll burst the bubble. Nice. I feel alone with the
2: Kaya now, though. I feel yeah. ashamed. I was, uh, it was too soon. I had to ask no, anyone who defines himself by the car they drive. Oof, you are hanging out with the wrong people. You gotta.
0: That is so true. And so, let's take a bit of a step back, uh, just for the people who know you mostly as the SEO genius uh, from Moz. So, maybe tell us a bit about how Moz evolved. Like, how did you get that from zero uh, to the empire that you've built?
2: <laughs> Empire. Well, I'm um, not sure I would describe it quite that way, but we but Moz initially started as a consulting business. You know, I had well, and even before that is just a blog, right? I was learning SEO. I was a web designer, and I found the practice of SEO very frustrating to learn. I found a lot of conflicting and inaccurate information. I was extremely frustrated by the search engines hiding all the information about. What they had built and and how they they worked and operated, and so I created this blog to hopefully help break through some of the noise about that and share my journey as I was learning the process. And it was you know it was not a great blog. I think it took a couple of years before it got any serious traffic, but when it did, it turned into a great machine for generating consulting leads. And so we sort of switched our business from web design to SEO, and uh, that's when when SEO Moz was born. As a, as a business rather than just a blog. And then we were you know, doing reasonably well as consultants for a few years, mostly on the success of the blog and getting invitations to speak at conferences and events, which, which all came through the blog. And then that consulting business turned into a software business because we had built some tools behind the scenes. And you know me, I, uh, I don't like to keep things hidden or secret, so I wanted to make the, all our tools transparent and available to anyone, but we, uh, we couldn't afford to make them free. So we had to set up a little PayPal paywall, and that um, ended up generating so much revenue in the first six months that we realized we had you know a business that was as big and and potentially a lot bigger than our consulting business and so over the next couple of years, we shut down the consulting business. I raised some money from a venture capital firm here in Seattle called Ignition Partners and uh became sort of officially CEO of the you know, of the new software company. And over the next seven years, yeah, we went from, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in software revenue to, gosh, I think it was about $30 million when I stepped down as CEO and uh, and promoted my longtime chief operating officer to the role. And then I spent the next four years at Moz as kind of an individual contributor and board member, stayed on the executive team for a long time, and then uh, left the company in February. I think you know this year Moz'll do you know maybe in the th- around fifty seven million dollars in revenue, so it's you know it's a it's a good company in a lot of ways um I think it's helped a lot of people, and that's what I feel really good about but it um you know because it's venture backed it's kind of this stuck in the middle business where it's not growing quite fast enough to you know make the stock liquid it's um you know it's gonna have a tough time sort of getting to IPO unless the growth rate gets up. And this Um, is because it's venture backed? Yeah. Just the complexities of of the venture model mean that that while Moz is doing well, it's sort of not really doing well enough um, to be considered a success in that in that frame of mind.
0: So what would be considered a success because it sounds like it's doing very well.
2: Well, so let's see, Moz is growing at about maybe ten, eleven percent year over year. I think I think the minimum bar for venture sort of successful companies would be maybe twenty-five, but probably more like thirty percent year over year growth, uh growth in terms of, of revenue growth. And Maz is profitable, which is unusual for venture-backed companies and generally not preferred. You know, I think that most venture firms prefer that you are are burning capital or or running very close to break even, but you know, you're spending lots of dollars to grow faster. So the the model doesn't really encourage or support a hey, we're, you know, we're a profitable company that's spitting off dollars. You know, it's designed to grow as fast as possible, to be as attractive as possible for either an IPO or an acquisition. And those outcomes are dependent on growth rate much more so than profitability.
1: That's a like, really interesting uh, subject because a lot of people are looking at exit strategies. And it's funny to say that profit is not one of the most common exit strategies. <laughs> Which is, it's dumb just dumb it's not only dumb it's, it's like um if you tell me the first day when i got into business saying listen you don't want a company to be profitable you want it to grow you want to have burn rate you want to have a lot of yeah. backing behind it and like the, i wouldn't get the logic it's like the logic of cash flow which is also illogical so the more you grow and yeah. the more you, the better you do the worse cash flow you so in that strategy if you're finding a space like that what do you do because I hear you kind of apologizing right now for having a profitable fifty-seven million dollar revenue company, uh, which is not for an IPO or an exit, but it's a fantastic company, which is actually a lot safer than most of the, um, yeah. you know, other startups or, or tech companies out there. So, like, what do you think about that? Like, in in, in your
2: perspective, uh, I think that this model is. I think at the at the, at the core, of the model is broken. Right, it's essentially. Um, it's essentially a tax dodge vehicle, right? The reason that uh, growth is preferred over profits is because investors and owners of stock get taxed at lower rates than people who earn profits from their business that they own or people who are employees. And so, you know, essentially in order to save, whatever, you know, in the United States, somewhere between 20 and 30% on their tax rate, the entire sort of capitalist system, ecosystem of, uh, of wealthy dollars has gone into trying to find fast growing, high price exiting companies um, and assets rather than profitable businesses or businesses that pay a lot of money to to them to work there, those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a very odd model, but I think a natural result of sort of you know, when when the tax code is structured in a certain way, incentives change. And that's that's what causes these businesses to do these odd things. Um, and I think that's why it doesn't make logical sense.
0: How, how can a starting entrepreneur sort of uh,
2: win this game? I mean, you have to decide for yourself, right? You decide as an entrepreneur, you you say, look, I am signing up to play the game. Right. And, uh, you know, you get you get to choose. You say, I Want to build a long-term profitable business that you know pays its staff and employees well and these kinds of things, or you know what? I think I'm up for the capital gains tax rate uh, optimization model of growth at all costs. You know, raising institutional capital and seeking to get a five to ten x return on that money in seven years or less. You know, seven to ten years. Those kinds of things. Um, so it's a choice. It's a choice that we all make. I think that one of the biggest problems in the field is that entrepreneurs don't feel like they have a choice. They feel like only one model is marketed to them. And I think they're right, right? That that all of the attention and all of the accolades go to, you know, a handful of companies that grow fast and have big exits and big fundraising events. You know, you never read in the newspaper or you know in the um tech press, right? You never read a uh, company, you know, makes $2 million and uh, 500000 of that is profit for its owners, right? Even though that's a great story, that's wonderful and awesome for those people who built that business that is never talked about, never read about, reporters don't investigate. But someone raises $2 million, that story is everywhere.
0: Even though that yeah. may lead to nothing
2: even and most of the time that is exactly what it leads to right i think about uh, 90% of venture outcomes don't return enough money to be considered a success for the fund right so
0: yeah success is celebrated very early in these uh, scenes
2: yeah and i think that's part of it right that consciously or unconsciously to the you know to an individual investor uh the way the market is set up is to advertise to entrepreneurs that the the only real path is you know a venture backed or an institutionally backed path uh, and that's not to say it's a bad one. I think that it can be remarkable and wonderful for some people um you know if you're if you're one of the one in ten, it's pretty awesome um, can be anyway and uh and that's great that the problem is that I don't think the alternatives are presented one in ten it's i mean it depends on which statistics you look at right so i think I think maybe six or seven percent of venture investments would be considered successful by the investor and maybe a little bit more would be considered successful by the entrepreneur because there's there's a healthy number of acquihires and sort of small right. exits where the entrepreneurs still feel okay. I think a big challenge, a bigger challenge is talking about employees in this field where I think it's more like three in a hundred that where the teams make enough money from their stock and stock options um, or acquisition bonuses to be you know to have said, wow! I think we did better in this company that I this startup that I joined than I would have done if I had you know gotten a job at Google or Microsoft or Amazon or Facebook or something like that. Right,
0: and that's something also that you discuss in your book. Well, not not specifically the uh, the cost uh, and the value for the employees, but it's part of what you discuss about uh, a cultural fit. Because I think maybe once people are not driven uh, precisely by money, then maybe that has more potential for the business as well. And uh, then maybe then people are driven by other motives.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that's really tough about the uh, about the binary aspect of this model as well, which is that I think many entrepreneurs want to build a business because they're excited about the potential of that business existing, you know, and making Making a difference in the world whatever whatever world they happen to be in or whatever world they're excited about, and I know you know tons and tons of entrepreneurs who you know when we meet when we talk about what they're building and what they want to do um, or people who are trying to get jobs and what they want to do, we unfortunately end up talking about how can they successfully pitch and raise money right how How can they sell an investor on the idea that their their company is interesting rather than How can they make the company live and survive and thrive? Do Um, do you think if they talk about that, that would make a difference?
0: I mean, at the end of the day, they need the funds. So if they don't have that, then it's just a bunch of people with a hobby, isn't it?
2: So I think uh, this is an interesting case where many businesses can start and grow without significant investment Um, and certainly without institutional investment, right? Venture or private equity or, you know, asset classes like those making the investment and and yet many people believe that they can't do it without, you know, without that first round of venture and believe that there's um and structure their business in a way that uh requires it, demands it. I don't think that's a good good move either. Right. I think if you're designing a business uh in the early stages, you don't know whether it's going to be a good fit for, you know, venture or or private equity or um You know, angel investors or bootstrapping or whatever, right? You you just don't know, and so doing those first few months, even years of investment, whether that's in your side time or or you know, bootstrapped yourself or with a little bit of angel money, I think is a really smart way to go before you go try and you know raise these huge rounds from these institutional investors who have much bigger exit expectations.
0: Yeah, I would also lose interest in you very quickly if your uh, growth rate isn't what you've described before.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And then just going back, rewinding back a a little bit. So how did you end up getting interested in SEO in the first place Uh, and you started working with your mom? Like, how did you end up working with your mom? It's not very uh, standard.
2: (laughs) No, no, I don't think. I think mom and son uh, business is probably one of the least likely combinations in in the field. So I had done a little bit of contract design work for my mom's, you know, marketing consultancy business in the late 90s. And when I dropped out of college in 2001, you know, I told my mom, hey, I want to work with you full time and and just do web design. And I think there's a big market here. And she said, sure. And then, of course, the dot-com crash happened, and we, uh, <laughs> we we sort of panicked for a few years and went deeply into debt and tried to figure it out. But um, and the, I think that the more in debt we got, the, the worse things went, the more we were stuck together trying to figure out how to make this business survive. And, yeah, we had um, we had some good years. We had some tough years.
0: Was she in Moz uh, all throughout the years, or she, did she leave at some stage?
2: Yeah, let's see. So she... She was president of the company until uh 2007 and that's when you know when we raised venture they basically said hey Rand you know we want you to be CEO and so that was a that was kind of a tough conversation between the two of us How did you take it Um I think you know like I said I think it was hard I think it was emotionally hard and you know she felt like hey this is a company that I you know built since 1981 right so to have somebody else uh kind of take it over I think she was Proud of me and excited for where the business could go, but also, yeah, it's sort of sad and frustrating, and probably a, a lot of emotions that I think were probably hard to process at the time.
0: Yeah, and did, did you feel like uh, you you got stronger your relationship out of it, or did you maybe sort of make you take a step back from each other?
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, probably the latter of those two. It was it was just I think it was hard on hard on her, and I I felt probably still feel uh, guilty about it. Right. And, um, you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure that at the time and and going forward the next few years, you know, my mom didn't have the best sort of working relationship with some of our board members and uh, some of the team at Moz, which a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of them I had hired um, and brought in. So, yeah, I think that was I think that was really hard. And, and I and certainly maybe. feel for her because later in my career, sort of a, a similar ish thing happened to me. More more voluntary on my side, but um,
0: when you step down from being CEO,
2: yeah, when I stepped down from being CEO, I think um, I had an expectation of how the working relationship would develop over the you know over the years to come. I wanted to stay at Moz for a long time, for the, you know, for uh, at least until Moz sold. And of course, the company's growth rate uh, up until 2014, right, the year that I stepped down, would be, had been. Very high, you know, 100 percent year over year for you know six years, and then I think you know slowing to 50, 55 percent the last year. But after that, it slowed dramatically. You know, it went went down to maybe 20 percent, and you know, the last few years it's been 10 percent. Uh, so it, it kind of went from a, a company that you know everybody was excited about, and lots of investors were excited about. The stock was worth a lot of money. And that actually to answer your earlier question, so my mom managed to sell some of her stock in, what was that, 2013, 2012 or 13. She sold a good chunk of it and made a nice bit of money, something I, I regret doing. I should have I should have joined her, but I was sort of very overconfident that, that it was going to be worth even more in the future.
0: And I think also that's a big lesson that followed you through other decisions that you've made, including, for example turning down a huge offer of investment from HubSpot right from Brian Halligan who was also a guest on this show
2: yeah yeah um so not an offer of investment they offered to buy the company you know they're ba- basically they basically they said money. hey we want to we want you know HubSpot to buy Moz and uh, i was excited about that but i was again greedy and overconfident thought thought we would be worth even more in a few years and I, I clearly should have said yes to that for a number of reasons. But even, even if we're purely talking about the financial side, you know, HubSpot would have almost certainly paid a lot of that in stock rather than cash. And you know, of course, HubSpot's stock in 2015 when they went public was worth 20 times, 30 times what it was worth in in 2011 when we would have uh, gotten it. So
0: painful. Oops. <laughs> that must come up in like family dinners.
2: <laughs> yeah, it comes up, it comes up a bit.
1: But you're saying that also, like. That's a that's a hard situation because if you're being CEO of the company, it becomes subjective the decision of not to sell because you're confident of what's going on, and uh, it's not only the money. You're you're thinking like I'm selling it. I'm kind of saying goodbye to something that I, I'm part of. Mine, I built it. Um, did you have that yeah. feeling, or was it just like an economic thing?
2: Um, I think both of those. Uh, I would say, you know what, in the HubSpot offer, I I knew Brian and Indarmash really well. I was excited to work with them. Um, I, I thought very highly of their company. So no, I would say, I would say it was mostly an economic decision at that point. Right. Because I don't think there was, I don't think I had a lot of non-financial things holding me back from saying yes to that deal. I think it was mostly just a, I think we're worth more than this and let, let's hold on. You know, this is our first offer. Let's see what other offers we're going to get over the years. And we have this great company and this great growth rate. And, you know, I really like working here. Let's, let's see how it goes. And then, of course, you know, fast forward to years later and the, the growth rate stalls and I'm no longer CEO and I feel like I can't, you know, sort of influence and control the company and do the things that I think would lead the company to greater success and that the offer looks better and better in the rearview mirror. But But I have to say, I'm still not sure what the lesson here is. I would say there's a few, right? One of the ones that I would certainly tell folks to think about is if you sell your first company early. You have a long life to build many other companies. And and by selling that first one and you know making it wouldn't have been a few million dollars, it would have been a lot of money. You take a ton of risk off the table for yourself and your family, for your employees, for your employees' families. Um, you know, you get sort of all the accolades and awards in the in the press and, and you know, investors will be interested in you next time. So there's a there's a tremendous amount of positives that come with that. And you remove a ton of risk. I understand that there's some people who you know, have sold their first companies and then been frustrated and felt like, ah, this wasn't the greatest fit and maybe I should have kept going with it. I think that that regret is totally plausible, but it's a very solvable regret because you can start another one. Right, you always have the option. Right, you you always have the option to start another one, and it'll be you've learned so much that first time. Right, the second time around, it'll be even easier, which is why you know second and third time entrepreneurs tend to have more successful outcomes than first time. And I think that the the reverse is not true. There's no way to sort of go back in time and take that offer once you turn it down. That makes things really difficult. And many many companies I know. That i've talked to over the years and this could be because i've written about Moz's situation but I, you know i've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who've had this a similar thing happen to them you know they had a company that was doing well they turned down acquisition offers they you know found that a few years later things got much harder and even if you're making you know again going back to our growth model you can make a lot more money i mean Moz is making 10 times more than 10 times as much as it was in 2011 but I don't think that even today we could sell for no. what we could have back no. then. And certainly, even if we did sell for that, you know, the employees and founders wouldn't make nearly as much because the dilution over the years from investment no. has, has meant that we have to do, you know, much, much better to make the same amount of money.
0: I think it maybe also takes a lot of confidence. It's ironic, but actually a lot of confidence to say yes to such an offer, because it sort of means uh, that you believe uh, that you can actually succeed. With a new company, and if you yeah. feel a bit of an imposter and that you just got lucky, uh, then maybe it's actually a good reason to sell and just get it over with and you know reduce the risk. But also, if this is if your business becomes your life and what you mean, then sort of putting a stop to that becomes more than an economical question, uh, and it becomes very scary.
1: But not, but 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 physically, it's like if you think about it, even if you're an imposter, if you're going to an imposter in your own business at the end of the day that's even more dangerous keeping that business like when you sell a business, you may not have maximized the profits that's why I'm agreeing here because you didn't maximize the profits, but you got momentum so you know Google knows who you are you've done it before you know x amount of people you've played the game you won the game like now it's you're not gonna there's gonna be it's like having uh we talked about cars in the beginning define your cars so you sold in Ten million, and not a hundred million. So the hundred million guys are going to laugh at you. But in the ten million space, you're a rock star. So you got momentum backing you up. At least you got momentum backing you up. When you have a company, and you went to at the end, you may lose that momentum. You may they'll just say, oh, that company that was really good then and then. So I have to agree that definitely, like that's a great lesson because it's it's not a it's not a greedy, It's just to understand that if you're young enough, you're probably going to have a lot of opportunities at least get that backlink, that, that momentum with you and you can repeat it or at least try to repeat it. Investments will be easier,
2: you know? Well, and yeah, I think, so I think actually I I agree with both of you. I think that there's, there's an emotional side to the, you know, to feeling like an imposter and to being overconfident. I think you have to have a lot of, you know, self-awareness to be able to correctly process what's going to make you feel Good or bad in the long term, and uh, to be able to accept things that you won't be able to control in the future in either in either case, so this is you know there's no there's no easy answer here. I think one of the best lessons though that that any entrepreneur can take away is that in this world where dollars are chasing not dollars, not profitable businesses, not sort of you know good survivable businesses, but growth and growth alone. You should recognize that even at small revenue numbers, having a high growth rate is potentially your most exciting asset. And when you have a very high growth rate, when you get to a place with the, that's a very high growth rate, even if you're small, that might be a great time to market and sell your business. Right? To really think a about t- percentage of growth rate year over year as being the marker rather than, hey, we are this big or we've gotten to this point. Now's a good time. I think recognizing that growth rate is what's valued and that it's harder and harder to achieve those numbers as you grow is something that everyone should should consider.
0: I guess there's no rule of thumb here. It's a matter of understanding that you've hit some sort of momentum uh, yeah. and it, and just not to be greedy, maybe.
2: Yeah. Oh, and, and the other thing I might suggest to a lot of folks is you don't have to play this game. I, I think there's a lot of, like we were talking about earlier in the call, uh, there's a lot of Stuff that's really dumb about playing the the growth game and the you know seeking an exit game, you can build a small slow growing business, but as so long as it's profitable and you own it, you can be taking money off the table every year and potentially you know be far more financially successful. I know plenty of uh, entrepreneurs with consulting businesses right with the, which the tech world looks down upon and you know uh, derides it with pejoratives like oh that's a lifestyle business and you know oh how crappy and they have made way more money and a lot of them have had much more happiness and success and brought a lot more happiness and success to their team and employees as well i think that the that the model that's held up of you know oh you know scalable software entrepreneurs or product businesses those are the the markers of true success, uh, I would reject that.
0: Yeah, and and it also just leads to a situation where people just don't know what they're getting into at all. Yeah. And then making some wrong decisions. This is
2: hard stuff. This is hard stuff to know, right? Because there's not a, it's not like we take classes in, hey, this is how all these different models function and here's what entrepreneurship looks like. And we don't have a a ton of coverage of anything except the, you know, the big, fast-growing, venture-raising tech firms. So, yeah, it's hard.
0: I think also for you, though, you've sort of managed, and I'm curious when in your life that happened, to take ego out of the equation completely. And I know maybe rejecting the HubSpot offer uh, sort of contradicts that, but maybe not. But just in general, it seems like you're not letting ego affect your decisions and you're making it your business to be transparent about the uncomfortable and weaknesses that you have. And I'm just wondering... How did you evolve into that? Or was that something that you always made sure to take out of the equation?
2: Oof, no. Um okay. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna disagree strongly. I think I am very ego driven. Uh I think I have a huge chip on my shoulder about, you know, my experience at Moz and I feel like I have to prove myself to I don't know to whom, to the world, to me, maybe to me most of all that I can, you know, successfully build another company, that I can scale it, that I know how to build a great software firm, that you know, some people at, at Moz maybe made mistakes in in not listening to me. You know, those kinds of things, right? So that those are very ego-driven decisions. And a lot of that is the driving force behind why I'm building SparkToro and how I'm building it and, you know, the fact that the investment docs that I used to, to raise basically say that my investors can't remove me as CEO and yeah, so there's. That's not ego driven. I will say. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a self aware ego, and maybe that's the difference.
0: Maybe you know, we're it's... just not defining ego the same because I think ego is mostly driven by being very protective of your weaknesses and just by defending yourself and sort of playing it, you know, the big shot. And I think yeah. you have a lot of reasons uh, to you know, walk around uh with that attitude and yet it seems like you've really made it a mission of yours to not do that and and, and to actually show people what it looks like behind the scenes for real, uh in, in Silicon Valley and just in general for a manager leading a company that sounds like, you know, the top of success almost. So that doesn't sound very ego driven
2: to me. Well I I appreciate that. That, Thank you. That's a very kind compliment. And I I think that certainly investment in self-awareness, right? Understanding your own psychology and what makes you happy and unhappy and why you make logical or illogical decisions when you do, knowing the things that can sort of get to you. Uh, I think those are, yeah, those are powerful investments that people can make and should make. Certainly, they've been some of the best ones that that I've made. I think I talked about that a little bit in in Lost and Founder.
0: Yeah, but it's very um, vulnerable.
2: Yes, so that I I think that vulnerability is highly correlated with ability to improve one's self awareness and one's happiness. Um, and it feels very scary, but it's in fact incredibly uplifting and freeing. And I would I would encourage more people to be more vulnerable. And I would certainly, I would also encourage anyone who sees vulnerability in others, especially in in people around them, not to take advantage of that and criticize it and use it to, you know, sort of bring that person down, but instead recognize and uplift them and tell them, wow, that that was really vulnerable. And I'm so proud of you. And I want to encourage that and help you. Um, And that's awesome to see. I think that you know, much like transparency is getting more and more valued in companies and people over the last decade or two, uh, I think vulnerability is is a next thing that we should try to embrace.
0: I agree, but it just seems like, especially in the business world, it's just quite the risk just to be yourself along with your weaknesses.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I think there's there's risk. There's also great reward, and maybe that's you know that's that's how a lot of things work in this world.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I think that your book would be something that can really empower people, especially when they encounter all these situations where they would sort of feel alone and that they're the only ones going through that. Uh, and then reading your book, I think people can understand that it's just a very, very natural part of doing business.
2: Yeah, I certainly hope so.
1: And and uh, tell us about like the new venture. You you, you talked a little bit about uh, how you're trying to implement all, all your lessons in, into the new new business, um, like how how's that working out? And like, what, what do you suppose uh, is going to be the biggest difference?
2: Gosh, um, I mean, it's very early stages. We're only six months in and we, uh, you know, we don't have a product yet. We're still in sort of the R&D phase. Um, the, but so far, the business has felt very, very charmed. You know, we're keeping it extremely small. Uh, just, just two of us, the two founders, Casey and myself, uh, we are. We've done a little bit of contracting with some folks, which has been uh, been great. But um, we are uh, managing to being, you know, to staying uh, as low burn as we possibly can, and hoping to give ourselves a long runway to figure out, you know, the space that we're tackling, and the the market, and the customers, and the product. Are you get
0: grassroots or did you get an investment for it?
2: We did, yep. We raised uh, $1.3 million. We actually open sourced our investment documents because they're very unusual. Hmm. Uh, so I we, I opted out of the you know sort of classic structure and said, hey, I want to build a business that's going to be uh, profitable, that can be around for a long time, that can uh, reward its investors and its founders, not just through an exit, but through... You know distributions on annual profits, and so we remained an LLC, which is which is quite unusual. We have a an unusual payback structure for our investors, where we sort of you know cap our salaries until our investors are paid back one x hmm. their investment. So a number of a number of unique twists on how to make it work, but it was yeah interesting enough to uh, investors. We raised money from about thirty five people. Uh, all individuals and yeah we're going to use that investment to basically be able to mostly pay ourselves and our on our healthcare for the first year or two and then if we find great growth opportunities we'll we'll probably invest in those slowly but uh taking a very conservative approach not purely growth focused but also profit focused
0: and there's also not one uh company now that uh, that is affecting or taking control from you in any way because it's just separate people who are invested
2: this. Yeah, that's right. So we don't have a formal board of directors in this model, and we don't have any institutional investors. I, I strongly suspect we won't raise institutional money. It, I don't want to rule it out entirely. Yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe this business becomes, you know, huge and it really needs tens of millions of dollars in investment, and and then my, we might have those conversations. But um, I, I strongly doubt that. Yeah, the goal is make this product exist. I think that we were both. Excited about the the concept behind it, and sort of frustrated that it didn't already exist, and felt like there was an opportunity, and so we wanted to we wanted to chase it down, but not with the pressure of having to be, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue or we're useless, and that uh, that I think is often the case in in venture land.
0: Do you want to tell us uh, what the company is?
2: Sure. Yeah. So the company is called Spark Toro, and essentially what we are trying to build is. A search engine for sources of influence, meaning that if you want to know what do chefs in Los Angeles pay attention to, so that you can, you know, market to them and advertise to them and um, and reach them through places where they're paying attention, you can go, you know, uh, plug that into our tool and we will show you the, you know, the podcasts and the websites that they read. Uh, and the YouTube channels they subscribe to and the uh, people that they follow on social networks like Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and, uh, you know, the media sources they pay attention to, the events that they go to so that you can say, OK, if we want to reach chefs in L.A., we should, you know, try and speak at this event and get a b- booth at that one and, you know, sponsor this podcast. And so really all understand target
0: audiences in depth.
2: Yeah, it's about audience intelligence is what we're calling the. The field. I'm not sure that, that that field has a particular term. So we
0: maybe we'll coin it.
2: Yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed.
0: And this is a uh, very much like Moz for a niche audience. Then, this is not a mass market sort of solution.
2: Yeah, I think in the, it's very similar to Moz in that Moz was software for SEO professionals. I think SparkToro is going to be marketing software for uh, marketers who do outreach and targeting of all kinds.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, you've. Definitely got a lot of uh, tools. Acquired a lot of tools during the years uh, to make that happen. Like, how do you, for example, uh, approach hiring now? Do you approach it differently?
2: Right now, we're not approaching it at all. Right. Our plan is basically wait until we have the revenue to sort of justify to ourselves. Hey, we can see that there's real customer demand here and there's growth happening. So we know that you know we can't handle all of the work now. Let's bring in somebody as opposed to what I think happens very often, which is you you know raise some money, you build a team, and then your burn rate is very high, and you keep your fingers crossed that you can you know make the money to support that team. Our plan is sort of the opposite,
0: yeah, and also when people do that, then they're really not maxing out the potential of the current people on board,
2: yeah, I guess there's a little bit of that i uh I'm not a big fan of. You know, crazy long hours and sort of working yourself to the bone. I think that that's occasionally required, and certainly sometimes in my career, I've I've been there. But uh, I like functioning on a lot of sleep. Um, I like okay. to, yeah, I like to make sure that I have time for friends and and for uh, Geraldine, my wife, and being able to travel and all those things too. So uh, in a lot of ways, I think you know, Casey and I are building what venture capitalists often pejoratively call a lifestyle business, hmm. but one that I fully expect will grow and I think has the potential to be much more successful than many, if not most, venture investments.
1: What do you think, um, if you had to pick one, what would be your
2: superpower? Email. <laughs> 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 SEO. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, was, I'm, I think I was pretty good at SEO. I have a relatively good skill in sort of people empathy, um, being able to put myself in their shoes and thinking about what they would want and how they would respond to something um and act. But uh yeah, for a long time I think a lot of people who know me have said, you know, Rand's superpower is email. You know, that guy can get through <laughs> fifty emails in, you know, an hour and they'll all be well responded to and you can sort of quickly process what's interesting and what's not and send good, cogent, thoughtful, kind responses that people respond well to and reach out to a lot of people that way. So I, uh, yeah, I love, I love my email. You love me And on the kryptonite side? Ooh, ooh, kryptonite. Um, heavy process. I think, I think when things are process heavy, there's lots of meetings, lots of approvals, lots of sort of political processes to get through in order to, uh, get things done as opposed to a very relatively speaking dictatorial system, right? You do this, you do this, I'll do this, we'll all get it done by this day. I, I work much better in process-free or process-light companies than process-heavy ones. Right, is there a life hack to not making an organization-
1: Heavy? Heavy and like, I'm I meaning with six people it's logical, but like a 30, 40 people company and over being non-structured,
2: is that like a life hack for that? You are correct in that naturally, as companies get bigger, uh, more process gets introduced, and that you know that creates this, those sorts of environments. But I think there are absolutely things you can do to mitigate it. One is to give a lot of freedom in terms of how processes are accomplished across an organization to individual teams. So for every team of whatever it is, six to ten people who's working on something, you can tell them, hey, you define your process. We're not going to force you to use you know Jira or force you to use Google Docs or force you to use you six people agree on what works best for you uh so long as you you know hit these things which are requirements we're fine with it and we don't you know we're not going to demand and require a ton of like oversight into everything you are doing and how you got to the end goal and uh and all that kind of stuff right here's the here's the general requirements around whatever security compliance and legal compliance and and what the customer needs the rest you go take care of right we trust you and i think that that sort of light touch from uh management can be very empowering for for certain people for certain, for other people that, that they hate it right they they like that big sort of bureaucratic structure where everything is well known and well documented and it's all the same and if i move to any team in the company everybody does things the same way you know there's consistency of process and it might be a heavy process but at least it's you know easy to understand and easy to migrate around um, so there's trade-offs. Right. Right. I
1: heard a metaphor that uh, that talked about that, that. It's like the difference between a farmer and a hunter. Um, like, <clears> uh, um, uh, you know, the farmer can, can put a seed and just wait for it to, to grow. And there's other people in organizations that are hunters. then one time, you know, come home with the cheetah. And one time, you have no food
2: at all. So it's kind of like the creative and non-creative people. Mm, interesting. Interesting. So wait, is the hunter the process light and the farmer is the process
1: heavy yeah the hunter is process light because he he, um the idea is he goes out at home with not knowing exactly the structure or how he's going to catch what he catches or or how his Mm -hmm. day is going to be and the farmer actually has to have a methodical ruling of the day to 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 have that you know strawberry field be perfect and uh um you know just keep on the seasons growing and everything so there's a lot of thinking before of the whole process
0: but how can you like tell when you're hiring who's uh, who's that hunter?
2: Oh, I think asking people um, things that they really enjoyed and, and didn't enjoy in previous jobs, looking at where they worked and where they thrived and didn't, those are really good markers for that, right? So if someone says to me, you know, hey, I, I spent three years at Amazon. Before that, I was at a startup. I loved my startup environment. But, you know, at Amazon, I got into these you know, political battles and that was really hard for me. And that's one of the reasons I'm leaving. I sort of go okay I I know what kind of person that is right I know what sort of team and structure they're looking for versus you know versus sort of the reverse of that where well things were very uncertain in the startup and there was you know a lot of fear going around and we had um you know no everybody was like chickens running around without their heads off I I I didn't know what I was what what success looked like um it wasn't well defined by my manager and then I you know spent a few years at whatever it is, Google, right? And uh, I really enjoy that environment. It's yeah. sort of the uh, security there freed me uh, to be able to do what I do best. And okay, that's, a, that's another kind of person. And neither of those are negative, right? I think both are totally reasonable. It's just what's a good fit for your company um, and your structure.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult, I think, to understand, A, what you have understood that is a good fit for your company, and then to actually identify that, especially when recruiting, understanding if a person is a good cultural fit. Agreed. I think it's easier to understand if a person is a good fit with respect to their skills. But when it comes to an actual true cultural fit, mm-hmm. it, it it's really a room for a lot of misunderstandings and mistakes uh, and a lot of suffering along the road.
2: Yeah, I think we're I totally agree. I think we're much better trained in sort of the business world and, and society to value and recognize and judge skill in others and not recognize and judge and assess uh, culture fit. And some of that is we don't even recognize what our own culture is. Yeah. And so it is tough for us to broadcast that to someone else. And it's tough for us to hire for right culture fits.
0: It's The sort of thing that when you hire a person who's a good cultural fit, it's very clear, like you feel it. Uh, But Mm. it's very difficult. At least I find it difficult to sort of define it and say, this is what makes that person a good fit and that person less of
2: it. Yeah, I think part of this is just a time thing, right? Over time, you recognize, you know, you hire people, you let them go and you recognize, hey, these are people who work really well in our team. And what are the shared characteristics that they have, right? They have uh, whatever, a strong belief in autonomy, um, for example, they're good at committing to dates and getting things done on time, right? So they're they're very good at estimates even without process, um, which I think is, you know, that's a, a challenging thing. But some people are really good at it, others are are much less good at it. And I think that, you know, you can identify those those skills and traits over time and then start to hire for them specifically. But certainly in the early days, like a lot of things, you're muddling through, right? You're gonna make mistakes. That's okay. It's not their fault, it's not your fault. And I think having those conversations too, right? The first few people that we hire for SparkToro, I am absolutely going to have the conversation of, "Hey, we're really excited to bring you aboard. You're our first employee. We don't, you know, we don't know a lot about how this company is going to grow and what work is going to look like. And so, we should give each other a lot of room and forgiveness for mistakes that we will undoubtedly make. And if in six months this isn't working out for you or it's not working out for us, we should just be honest with each other. We shouldn't hold each other to to blame." Right. We shouldn't be angry. We should just accept that that is part of it. And if we're comfortable with that, great. Let's let's make the hire. And if you're not comfortable with that, yeah, it's probably not a good fit.
0: Yeah, in the first place. Okay, great. This is uh this is really great. This was super interesting. We wish you a lot of luck with SparkTuro. Uh with well, the book, you. it seems like it's already going pretty well, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um gotten some really nice feedback uh, business insider, just had a sort of list of the highest rated books of business books of uh, 2018. And I think Lost and Founder was tied for first place, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, no, I, I,
1: I totally get that. Like I have to, on a personal note, like, I, you know, it is a podcast, so I don't want to find uh, find myself being not uh, as biased, but but I the, the <laughs> book is genuinely an inspiration because it's it's like not having a model of building a book, just writing down what you think. And I think people appreciate it. At least we appreciate it a lot, um, and that's the source of inspiration. Because at the end of the day, you read books that have great theories, but you also would want to hear just a perspective that's fresh, unfiltered. And so that's how the feeling you get out of it. And um, and and we thank you for that. And we really, uh, uh, we're, we're we, we we love that book and share it to anybody that's uh, yeah. wants to get into business.
0: Anybody listening should definitely read that book.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that it resonated.
0: That's wonderful. Hundred percent did. So a lot of luck, Uh, and thank you.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Real life. superpowers. Up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology.
0: live.